KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando, and I'm here at Son of Monster Palooza in Burbank. And today I want to share my love of movie monsters with you. The first movie monster I fell in love with was King Kong. I remember my dad telling me stories about the movie and about the majesty of Kong. And I think before I even saw the film, I was in love with the giant ape. Monster Palooza and its smaller offshoot convention, Son of Monster Palooza, provide a celebration of movie monsters and creature effects. Each convention features panels on classic movie monster films such as Fright Night, American Werewolf in London, and the Japanese Godzilla. There are displays of props and masks, booths demonstrating makeup effects, and fans that love talking about their favorite creature features. To give you a taste of what you'll find at Monster Palooza conventions, here are a trio of interviews. First off, the founder and show organizer of Monster Palooza is Elliot Brodsky. I believe it's his mom who gives the convention its colorful PA announcements that make me think of being back in New York. The early bird catches the worm. We only have a few t-shirts and hats left, so all those that are interested in getting memories to remember us by, please, please come here now because there are very, very few left. Remember, the early bird catches the worm. All right, so now here's my interview with Elliot Brodsky. This is your 11th show. How does it feel and how, how much bigger has this become? Each year it seems like we get a good 15% more foot traffic coming in, which tells me that the word is out there, that it's a good show, that you're going to see really great displays that you're never going to see anywhere else. So people want to see something that looks real but isn't real. So tell me how you got the inspiration to start this up in the first place. I've always been a horror fan, and as a child, I actually tried to sculpt things, not knowing how to cast them, but with talking to people, artists in the industry, they gave me little pointers here and there. So even as a preteen, I was trying to make spooky uh, masks and always drawing, sitting down drawing characters of my own designs. Of course, as you get older, you, your interests drift a little bit, and I have a prop rental company on the East Coast that I work with movies and television shows in helping them create sets. And I don't know, all of a sudden I decide I'm going to sit down and start, try to make a monster design again. I think Halloween was coming up. I started talking to a lot of artists who were giving me tips on how to do things uh, in a professional manner from start to finish and forged a lot of great friendships with people in the movie industry. And after a few years of making things on my own and doing swaps with other artists, I said to them, do you think the Burbank area would like to see a show that really focuses on that? Not necessarily actors signing autographs tied into the movies, although that is an element, but more of meeting the people behind the scenes. And they were like, yes, please, please, please do that. And it gives them an opportunity to shine a little and make some money on the work they've done in their, on their own time. This is really a celebration of the craftspeople who make monsters and creatures in movies. Monsters, creatures, props that are used that if you think it's a chopping block and it's got a real blade on it, it's not real. 
and they're making the illusion of rea reality and again uh, people aren't aware of the fact that what they see on screen isn't even close to the real deal. And what do you think is fueling the success of the show? I think it's a combination of things. It's really a pay one price, get in, see the whole thing. You get an opportunity to see artwork that you don't get to see. We also pull together presentations all weekend that also discuss how things are created. And then we'll do a walkthrough exhibit that is in a very atmospheric setting with stage lighting and curtains and trees and so you don't feel like you're in a convention center for a few minutes so people feel like it's it's not following a cookie cutter process of doing the typical comic-con type show and one of the things i have always looked forward to seeing here is mike hill's work how did you end up hooking up with him and having him create these beautiful sculpts each year? Uh, again, the power of the internet. You know, I probably became internet friend acquaintance with Mike Hill, gotta be, you know, 12 to 15 years ago. And he is a one of the high-end, very hyper-realistic sculptors out there. We let him have an area to display stuff because his stuff is mostly commissioned work. And uh, he's been with us ever since. And it gives him as well as everybody else a great opportunity to have their work seen by so many people at one time and the audience appreciates what he's doing. Now in the years that you've been running this, how have you seen kind of the quality of the work that's on display in the booths? It seems like there's been a real marked increase in the quality. I've always had a high-end artist participating in the show and that was always intentional. And the truth of the matter is my audience, some of them can afford that kind of work and some of them can't. So I also make sure to have artists and vendors that are bringing things that can be point of purchase items where they don't have to put, you know, a, a major thought into, will this affect my, you know, bills at the end of the month? So, but I also want those point of purchase uh, opportunities to sort of not be the normal vendor that you might see elsewhere. I want it to feel like, oh, wow, this is new and different. I must have this. It sounds like you're um, really curating this convention. It is in a way, uh, you know, because I am, when I when somebody emails me to say, I want to do your show, I've only heard good things, I then, the next question I ask is, what is your name? Do you have a website? If not, can you send me photos? And if I have too many of one thing, I'm going to have to unfortunately say to them that I feel we've covered that base for the upcoming show and we need to find something else or it's just going to be too top-loaded or, or favor one side to another. I've been going for a few years to this show. It's been at Burbank the whole time, so you are, you've gotten too big here. We're doing the big move for spring. Last spring was a little complicated in that our museum I bring in a lot of effect shops and artists who are really bringing very high-end things in. And in the past, people would walk through the exhibit and, you know, take a picture of an item and keep moving. Now with the uh, advent of selfies, people are now taking five or six pictures, checking to see which one they like before they leave the room, which means the, the line to get in is taking six times as long to walk through. 
meaning we needed to have the line literally feeding through the entire convention center, causing a human blockade. And I don't want to affect my artist's sales ability. So by moving to Pasadena, we are tripling the show in size. So how do you feel about that? That's kind of a big move. Very excited. Uh, I started, I signed the agreement in July. I started selling space in August, and we have 70 10 by 10 vendor spaces that are all sold out. And then we have 300 artist tables spaces that I have out of the 300, I only have 15 left. The show will go on. It will be bigger and better. And I have other ideas that will give it even a, another kick up the ladder in quality. Now, are you planning to move both Monster Palooza and Son of Monster Palooza? I, I don't intend doing that. I'd like to see Son of Monster Palooza remain in Burbank, and uh, I like this location very much. So, it too might grow as the Spring Show has grown, but we might have to follow the same blueprint that we've used in the Spring Show for this show in allowing growth. Now is there a panel that you have dreamt of having here that you still have not secured yet? Something that you really would like to see happen? Again, you know, we've done so many panels of iconic horror films like American Werewolf in London, Fright Night was also another one we covered, Predator. You know, these are iconic, character-driven, practical effects films. There's still a few and I also like to cover the old classic black and white films, especially since a lot of the people involved in those films are not necessarily around this day and age. So whenever I can hook up with a, uh, 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 somebody who literally worked on a film from the classic silver screen days, I would immediately try to plug that in to show we are interested in all decades of uh, horror film. So uh, I have some ideas for, for April, we'll also be doing a lot of how-to instructional classes. Do you find that there are a lot more people coming who are either into home haunts or into like creating more elaborate costuming? Do you see an increase in that that's also driving the popularity of the convention? I would say that the angle we do, which has always been involved in the equation from the get-go, was how do you do these makeups? And we have at every show at least eight or nine locations doing very professional makeup uh, applications where people can watch. And I find that the casual attendee will look and then kind of check it out for a few seconds and move on. You can tell when somebody is standing there for 10 or 15 minutes watching that they have a genuine curiosity or are thinking about the makeup industry as a direction for their uh, life to take. Again, the casual person is enjoying the site. They might pick up some tips for a Halloween makeup that they might need. We do sell products here that help them accomplish those makeups, and you're not going to necessarily get that little tutorial at a Halloween store. And they're picking up tips here, but they're also seeing people from the TV show Face Off, who are now considered, when you're a, a contestant or a judge, they're like celebrities now, and they want to meet these people just based on the fact that they are in their living room each weekend uh, or week and showing them the process. So there has been a, 
a renaissance in a way of people wanting to learn how to do it and apply it. We just had a costume contest yesterday. We had about 45 people participate in it. And I have to admit, out of the 45 makeups and costumes that I did see, I would say out of the 45, at least 38 were top notch, ready to be put in front of a camera. So people are learning how to do this and have an interest in inspiring and really entertaining somebody and showing what the possibilities are. Your show is also a celebration very much of the practical effects. You've had suit actors from Godzilla come out here and be on panels. And do you see that there's kind of been a little bit of a return to that in the movies and that that's also been popular? I've seen plenty of CGI being done. Some of it honestly doesn't really feel right to me. But I have to admit, there are some CGI films where I say, hey, that's the way it's got to be. You know, if you got to build a 75-foot gorilla, uh, CGI is probably the way to go. But I do appreciate the films that can mix the two. Because my eye, maybe because of my age, I can tell when CGI is being used and when practical effects are being used. I thought Guardians of the Galaxy was very well done. The foreground characters, for the most part, were in makeup, and the background characters, for budgetary reasons, were CGI. I believe J.J. Abrams, his new Star Wars film, his intention was to do the same. A lot of practical effects being incorporated. I would like to see a mix of that, because there was a few years there where they were really pushing the practical to the side because it gave the creators, the producer, the director, the opportunity to change the character at the last minute or take him out completely. Whereas in practical, you are really committed to that design the minute it's on film. You know, they, and that's how it was done in the old days. So I see the organic needs of practical. I, I don't know why I find CGI still uh, in its ability to convey weight is not 100% if I'm watching a Rise of the Planet of the Apes or whatever the name of the film is where a gorilla or something is jumping from point A to point B it's a little Peter Panny to me there's no thump to the landing or weight to pulling on something and truthfully it will be down the road where they will master it and it will you won't be able to tell the difference but still the char- the actor I think also wants to be in makeup it gets them into character better so I think I'm hoping it will be around but CGI is definitely sitting in the passenger seat with it and do you have a favorite panel that you've had over the years many many panels have been my favorite I had the as mentioned before the American werewolf panel where I had the stars of the movie, the director, the makeup artist. Uh, Rick Baker participated in it. He's multiple Emmy uh, Academy Award winner. And uh, so that was a strong one. And we did a great Godzilla panel a number of years ago. And the uh, fellow who played Godzilla for the first 20 years, he was here and we had an interpreter and he showed him everybody how to do the Godzilla walk. And that was a lot of fun and we showed clips. And it's been, at least every show, there's a panel that I enjoy where you get to hear the actual people who worked on iconic films. All right, I want to thank you very much. Uh, Thank you. Enjoy the show. 
Next, I spoke with artist Mike Hill. Anyone who's been going to Monster Palooza or son of Monster Palooza reveres his name because for each convention, he makes a magnificent monster-themed sculpt that drops people's jaws and makes them just stare in awe. My favorite was a life-size sculpture of makeup artist Jack Pierce working on Boris Karloff's makeup as the Frankenstein monster. It was like you were in the makeup room with these two horror legends, and it was breathtaking. These sculptures are so lifelike that you expect them to move at any moment. Here's Mike Hill describing the piece he brought to last week's Son of Monster Palooza convention. And this was standing next to a life-size recreation of Bela Lugosi as Bram Stoker's infamous Count Dracula. So tell me about your connection with Monster Palooza. Every year I come out here and I get to see these gorgeous sculptures. So how did you get started doing this? Well, for Monster Palooza itself, you know, Elliot, the, the, the gentleman who runs the show, he's also a sculptor too to make a lot of heads. So we kind of knew each other offline, off boards as a mutual monster making community. So as soon as, you know, he opened the show, he asked me to get involved, which I did. And it's a great way for me to, because as artists, we want to show people our work. You know, no point putting in a closet. So Elliot gives us a chance to display and, show, and basically show off our work so everybody can enjoy it because the biggest sin of all is to keep art locked away. The pieces that you bring out here, are these ones that you create specifically for the show? Are they commission works? Where do they go after? You know, everything I do is very rarely a commission. A lot of the time it's something I just want to make for myself because, you know, I'm an artist and I have to sell my work, but if it doesn't sell, it has to be something I want to keep in my house. So I normally do the classic characters that I grew up with as a child and adored. So the time was right to do Bela Lugosi's Dracula, which is very challenging because unlike the Wolfman or the Frankenstein monster, those guys, you can't hide behind the makeup. You know, if you see a square head and bolts, you say, hey, it's Frankenstein. But we count Dracula, there's nothing hiding. There's a little bit of pale makeup on his face, some high eyeliner. But apart from that, it's just Bela Lugosi's face. So, you know, I held off for the longest time to actually, I did him once before, just a head. I was never happy with it. So it was finally the time. The pieces, once they're done here, do they then go back to your storage and then you try to sell them? No, I don't. If, if people don't, if, if nobody buys them, I then yeah, they just go to my house. The good thing is I don't have many at my house, so that's good, you know. But again, it's a win-win. These, these pieces are our children. It's a coin of phrase. So again, you know, if it, if no interest parties want to buy it as, as part of their collection, it's fine because it stays in my collection. I'm happy with it, you know. So it's again, it's win-win. I don't lose. I think the one that impressed me the most was the one where you had Jack Pierce putting on the makeup to Frankenstein. So it was two actual figures. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, Jack, you know, Jack Pierce is, you know, the legend behind all these characters. A, a lot of the, the monsters we know today, every werewolf, every Frankenstein monster pales in comparison to Jack Pierce's. And even if it's an advancement on it, it's all based off, you know, the springboard was Jack Pierce. The man was a genius. The monster making community just owes him a lot. Is one, is one of our idols. For a piece like this of Dracula, how much time did it take you to put this together and what's kind of the craft that's involved? Because I don't even know what it's made out of. Well, I, I start off by sculpting it in clay, a water-based mm -hmm. clay. That's the most lengthiest time to sit and I think I spent like a week on this one trying to get the portrait correct, you know. You never really get it correct, I guess. You just give it your best shot. Yeah, so the portrait takes like a week and then you've got a mold, cast, seam, paint, hair. So I actually did this one pretty fast in the sense that I already knew what I was going to do. So it wasn't like something I was figuring out as I went along. I knew exactly how it did. I sculpted a model kit, a very a licensed model kit of Belagosi as Dracula many years ago. And it was like a small version of this. So I knew the pose, I knew the clothing, I knew the likeness of what I wanted to get. So it was about three weeks, this one. That's, I mean, that's too fast, actually. But I wanted to get it done for the show. 
when I look at him, the eyes look real. It looks like if I touched him, I would feel flesh. But what is he actually made out of? He's now, he's cast up in silicone. It's a silicone rubber, which is, we're in Silicon Valley, so it's the best place for it, right? Yeah, so it's silicone, which is, it, the reason that we use silicone is it has a translucency of flesh. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously you have to color it and pigment it and, and to get that, you know, that not too, not too translucent, not too opaque, just the right tone of skin. So silicone's the one, and the good thing about silicone, as opposed to wax, which has been used for centuries, is this thing can't break. You know, the head can fall off, it'll bounce. Whereas a wax head, which I've used in the past, it's very brittle and you can scratch the paint off this. Even when you paint it, you paint it with silicone. So you're painting it with the same material that it's made from. So it's a mechanical bond, it's the paint will never come off. Yeah, it's just a real nice material to use. So if somebody walking through the convention said, I want to take Bella home with me, how much would it cost them? I will never tell you that, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> it's a lot, though. It's a lot of work, and it's a piece of artwork, and mm -hmm. you can't judge it on the time it took. You've got to judge it on the 45 years it took to train yourself to make it this, you know, look like this. So, yeah, you know, I'm going to keep my lips sealed on that one, okay? <laughs> All right, what if I wanted to take it home? I'm, I'm refinancing my house right now, you know. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> So what other kind of, is this the only kind of artwork you do is these sculpts or what else do you do? No, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm just an artist per se, you know, and I make these guys, I love these guys and I just make them all the time. That's what I do. I, I work on some TV shows, um, some movies, but occasionally I don't really like to do it a whole lot because I have to run my own shop as well, so it's not cost effective for me. But uh, yeah, mainly I just sculpt what, what I like and hopefully I can keep making a living from it. How did you get into horror? How did I get into horror? Yeah, I mean, were you always fascinated as a kid with watching horror films? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a child, one of my earliest memories is King Kong. I, I just, I, I don't know when I first discovered King Kong. It has to be my earliest memory. I was just in love with King Kong. I still am. So then you buy the books, or you across books and about King Kong, and you find all the other monsters in there as well, and it all becomes the... And then, I, and then at four years old, I saw a, a scene from a movie called The Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed which is my favorite movie and my favorite character of all time. And I'm like, to my gran, I'm like, gran, what's happening to me? She said, he's a werewolf. And I was like, what's a werewolf? And it came from there. And so I became fascinated with dual personalities. I, I like character. I like these guys. Dracula doesn't want to be a vampire. And the line for the movie is, to die, to be really dead, must be glorious. He doesn't want to be what he is, but he is what he is. We don't really know his background. People have speculated what Dracula's background was, but no one, Bram Stoker never mentioned what it really was. He's great. Obviously, werewolves, dual personalities, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, you know, even down to superheroes, uh, Spider-Man and all these guys. I've just always been fascinated by somebody who becomes somebody else, you know. I'm not a schizophrenic in any way, I don't believe, but I just, I don't know, it's always appealed to me, especially if, it, if it's through no fault of your own. I love the Wolfman and characters like that because it's no fault of their own. Even the Frankenstein monster, look at him, he's a child, really. He didn't want to be born. A real good job they put that demented brain in his head because if they would have put a good brain, he'd have been like, why the hell's my head square? What have you done to me? So, anyway, yeah, so everyone, these guys are all cursed, and that's what I love. And how did you get into the art aspect of this and actually, like, putting your love of horror into your artwork? I think it's just back in the early 1970s when I was a little child, it, that was my, my toys was to be able to draw monsters and, and buy plasticine and try and sculpt monsters. You know, they were, you couldn't get monster action figures then, certainly not in England that I know of, and certainly not from couldn't afford to buy monsters even if they did sell them. So I, I started to make them and I guess it's it stuck with me now for you know 45 years. And did you actually train as an artist or have you been self-taught? 
No, I didn't train as an artist. Just me in my bedroom and whatever I could find. I think you can, you can train some kind of technique, what materials are better, but I don't think you can actually train an artist as an artist, and it's not about the hand, it's all about the brain. Anyone can move a piece of clay from A to B, but it's knowing where B is. That's what an artist does. So what do you enjoy about Monster Palooza in the sense of your artwork is out here, people are coming by, taking tons of photos. What is it like for you to experience, you know, them appreciating your work? Well, you know, it's, it's wonderful. You know, I get a, a big kick out of people saying, great job, this looks great. And it's not to pat myself on the back. It's just that, you know, when are we going to see Bela Lugosi in the flesh? We're not going to see him. So I like to say that it's like meeting an old friend for the first time, you know, you've read about them. If you could stand back next to Jack Pears, if you could stand next to Oliver Reed, Bela Lugosi, I think that's, you know, that's wonderful. And, and I love people taking pictures. I like people getting close to it because, again, why do you want art stuck in a closet? You want to let everyone see it. That's why we make it. It's an expression. And there it is, you know. So Monster Palooza is the avenue to do that. And that's why I appreciate the show so much. And is there a creature or monster that you are just dying to do that you haven't done yet? There's a ton of them. The one I really want to do is not a monster or a creature. I want to do Fay Ray in King Kong's hand. I really, I want to do that. And it's just such a big project that um, I'm going to do it. I've just not got around to it yet. I sculpted a portrait already, but I've just got to take up the time and the expense of making a full body in a giant King Kong's hand. Actually, I already did the hand, so so maybe maybe this time next year we'll see Fay Ray. So I think people are going to be taken back because they expect to see these monsters, but they're going to see a beautiful woman who's terrified of a gargantuan monkey, you know? <laughs> All right, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, thank you. And finally, I spoke with veteran director and actor Tom Holland. If you don't know his name, perhaps you'll remember the films he's directed. Everyone has a birthday they'll always remember. Can we open my presents now, Mommy? This is Andy's. Time for bed, Andy. Good night, baby. Good night, Aunt Maggie. Good night, Chucky. That's right, he directed Child's Play and gave us Chucky. But he's probably best remembered and most loved for his affectionate homage to horror, the original Fright Night. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Mom, I didn't have a nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. Fright Night. If you love being scared, this could be the night of your life. As I was settling down to speak with Holland, he began talking about Wes Craven, because there'll be a tribute to the late horror master coming up in L.A. I wasn't quite ready for the interview to start yet, but I turned on the recorder because he was recalling some fun facts about Wes Craven. So let's just jump in as Holland is recalling how Last House on the Left had scared him. Mine would be shocking because it was the first time I ever saw a girl pee her pants. And I'd never seen, I never, never thought about it, you know. 
And the other one was he did very, very long takes. Later on, he told me it was because, this was Wes Craven, he told me it was because he didn't know enough about getting different angles to cut something together. So he just put the camera down in, a, in, a, in what we call a master shot and let the action run. But that made it more disturbing in some ways. So, you know, I mean, we're talking about Last House on the Left, Wes Craven. And the other thing that was just so unusual about him was that he had a personality that was diametrically opposite his movies. He was the nicest, quietest, most polite man, sweet. And I found out when I went to his memorial at the Director's Guild that he was a birder. He was an ornithologist, however you pronounce that. I mean, I mean, who ever heard of a horror director who went out watching birds? But that's what he did to relax. So he was this very odd fellow for somebody who had written and directed Nightmare on Elm Street. So why don't you tell me, what are you uh, going to be doing as a tribute to him? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a panel. I think Mick Garris and a couple of the younger guys, Cy West, and I forget who else is there, you know, to talk about him, you know, because I've known him since 86 or 87. They asked me to do uh, one of the sequels to Nightmare on Elm Street, and I went in to talk to him. I didn't do it, but you know. How did you get into this career of uh, doing war? Because I read that you actually passed the bar. Yeah, I, and the first time. And I graduated UCLA Law School. But then I suppose that's as strange as Wes Craven, who was always very professorial. I went to law school, I, I went to law school at UCLA because I didn't know what I wanted to do or what to do. And I, I, I got to the end of the first year and I realized I'd made a horrible mistake. I mean, I could hardly stay awake, you know? And I started writing, started writing screenplays. And I, I, I graduated, I passed the bar. And then while I was waiting to, no, I took the bar. And while I was waiting to hear whether or not I passed, I had a, my first screenplay option. I got my first money for writing which was just a huge deal to me. And I'd been so used to being poor as a student, I figured that I better keep on writing because if I started practicing law, I'd make money. And as you may have noticed, when whatever you make, you live up to that standard and it becomes a trap. You know, it's very, very difficult to make some money and go back to being poor. So I kept on writing and stayed poor. And then I still hadn't had a great deal of success at the first five-year reunion and everybody was buying their starter house you know and I thought well I've made a horrible mistake but I you know but I kept on with it and then you know ten by the time I between five and ten years out my career started to move you went to law school did you ever go to film school or were you kind of self-taught in terms of filmmaking? No, I will I'm not it's a little out of phase because I I started at Northwestern Theater School and I became an actor because I wanted to do film and there were no film schools and no way into film at that time. And acting was the only, only, only thing I had. I went to Northwestern and after a year I left. <clears throat> in the summer of my first year, I got an agent in New York City and I got a seven-year contract to Warner Brothers. And I came in at the end of, uh, at the end of what they call now the classical movie system and saw that in his death throes. They still had the set standing to the Ascot races at the My Fair Lady. 
was, was, was on the biggest stage because it was a, an enormous set. And out in the back lot, they still had Camelot, the set for Camelot the musical. And I was just thrilled. I was enthralled. And, but they were dying. It was Warner Brothers. And their, their TV business was falling apart because in the, in the late 50s into the early mid-60s, the studios made their money off of television series because television had cut so badly into theatrical grosses. And uh, so I did Temple Houston. I did the last, the last season of 77 Sunset Strip. And some, whatever television they had, I did. And then uh, the contract ended. They let me out because they had no business. And Jack Warner was trying to sign the studio, trying to sell the studio. He eventually did to uh, Steve Ross. And uh, I went back to New York and I started to work as an actor. But I, I had fallen in love with film. And I, I just learned by acting about directing and about writing. Sounds odd, I suppose. I was a soap opera star for three years. So I did live, live, live television for three years. Was live in those days with a tape delay to the West Coast. And I learned all about blocking. And then I was in the actor's studio out here. And I started to direct in the playwrights wing for playwrights. And then I met a lot of uh, Hollywood writers that were trying to become directors. And by this time, we're in 1969, 1970. And so the way to get in at that moment in time was writing original screenplays. And I did that, but I also started to work on assignment a lot. And then I became a very successful screenwriter. And from that, I was able to lever leverage myself. The Beast Within was the first film, but Psycho 2, the second one, was an enormous hit. And that propelled my career. And what attracted you to doing horror? Well, it wasn't, it, they were the entry-level jobs. It wasn't that I was, it wasn't that I wanted to be a horror filmmaker because everybody who surrounded me, horror was always the, the, the red-haired bastard stepchild of movies. And you always were looked down on. And everybody told me after Fright Night that I had to get out of it because if I did another one, I'd be in it forever. And so I went and I did Fatal Beauty. And I guess that got me out of it. That was action. But uh, my interest and my taste is in suspense. And suspense in those days was psychological suspense slash horror. Rosemary's Baby is a suspense piece. People think of it as horror because you have a, a two-second, three-second cut of the devil baby at the end. But that's a suspense piece. And that's always been my taste. And the genre that, that consistently gave me that was horror and uh, then I had another huge success with Child's Play and creating Chucky and so you know now I'm trapped you know at that point you're trapped well suspense seems to take more craft to create well thank you very much the uh, yes it does suspense is well I, I learned so much from doing Psycho too, because I studied Hitchcock I, I ran every film that Hitchcock did, starting with his silent movies, looking at his visual set pieces, which are really, that's, that's a graduate seminar in, in how to create visual suspense. And I could go on for an hour about it. Has it surprised you how popular Fright Night and Child's Play has remained over the decades? Yes. I'm very grateful. I want to thank everybody out there who's listening. 
the uh, Fright Night has become a classic, you know? And I mean, it's a love letter. I think it's because it has heart. I think it's because it's a love letter to fans. But I mean, I, I started to be approached by people who were three generations in the same family. People who had seen it when it first came out, who were now grandparents, and they bring their, their sons and then their grandchildren. And that's when I finally realized that, that that's what, you know, that, that Chucky, you know, Child's Play became Chucky, and that, that was an enormous, enormous hit. And, you know, whenever they have a hit, of course they do sequels. And the sequels have just further embedded it and made it, made Chucky travel as a, they don't even, Child's Play is sort of forgotten, which was the name of the movie. But the character of Chucky, you know, has become a worldwide horror icon. It may be almost the last, the last horror, I ca horror character that's become iconic, I don't know. The, uh, because that's, that's ended too, you know. Yeah, so Child's Play wasn't a surprise because that was such, you, you could sit with the test audience and you knew you had a huge hit. Fright Night was something else because I wrote Fright Night, you know, that was, that was my experience as a teenage horror fan. That's what it's like. We had horror hosts, you know, in, in the 60s who would be in the local channel doing the Friday night frights. They couldn't get a horror movie on until 11 a.m., you know, on your local channel. And I, of course, I watched them. And uh, they would always have a terrible, tacky host, you know, introducing the movie, Stagger Lee or Mortius or something like any, every, 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 every regional area had their own. And they were always, they always did them for no money. You know, you'd see a bat fly through the set and you'd see the, the, the wire that it was on, you know? And they were terribly hammy and everything. So that was what it was like growing up. And in that time, I was, I was, I was a horror fan, but I was a horror fan along with sci-fi, fantasy. Couldn't even find fantasy then, but there were great sci-fi movies like them. You know, they were ter terrific, terrific. The Creature from the Black Lagoon is one of my favorite, well, probably my favorite creature movie. The, so what I did is I wrote about my childhood, but I got the idea because I wrote Cloak and Dagger uh, for Universal with Henry Thomas and Dabney Coleman. And that was a, supposedly a remake of The Window, which is a Cornell Woolrich short story. But that's the juvenile version of Rear Window. Cornell Woolrich wrote, wrote both. And that was too thin a story to remake in 1983 or four, I forget. And uh, while I was sitting there, because it's a boy who looks out the window and sees a murder in the house next door. And I dropped that and I went on and wrote an original screenplay, Cloak and Dagger. But when I was trying to figure out how to remake that, I thought, wouldn't it be hysterically funny if a teenage horror fan became convinced that his next door neighbor was a vampire? And that gave me the idea for Fright Night. And I had a concept in that, but I didn't have the story. And I kept asking myself, well, what would I do if I were Charlie Brewster? And then I finally realized, of course, I'd go to the host of, of, the, of the local horror, horror movie from the Independent Channel. And I'd, ta I'd ask him for help. And I created the character of Peter Vincent, vampire killer. And Roddy McDowell did such a wonderful job. Char uh, Bill Ragsdale, Charlie Brewster, is the, the machine that makes it go. He's the one that's motivated. But the heart of it is, is Peter Vincent. And Roddy nailed that. Roddy had been in a, another movie that I wrote called Class of 84. 
and he'd been able to get the pathos of that character. So I knew he could play Peter Vincent. And everything went right with that movie, and it was, it was a success, but what's happened is it's just grown over the, over the years and over the generations. And I, it's very gratifying, I'm thankful, thank you all out there for that. But I mean, it, it's, it's been a, it's, I'm a, it caught me totally by surprise. I figured it out about 10 or 12 years ago because I was getting so much mail. You know, now just, just this is my second horror convention I've ever done, but I, I, I'm doing it because of, of, of Fright Nights that was what motivated me because it, it gets such love. And I, I mean, it, it, it just sort of grew, it snuck up on me. Because, you know, you do something, it's a hit or it's a miss or whatever, and then it seems like it's forgotten for 10 years or whatever. But they haven't even, and you can't find a Blu-ray of Fright Night. They've only done a limited release, Sony. Finally, it's the audience who makes the decision, and it's word of mouth. And that's, that's what's made Fright Night, you know, now a multi-generational hit. And it, I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm as shocked as anybody by it. I'm not by, I'm not by Child's Play, because you, you could tell. And by the time I did Child's Play, late 80s, the studios were sequelizing anything that made $1.95. So I knew that that, would, that that was worth two or three terrible sequels, you know, and they, 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 they drained the money out of it. And, but Fright Night never really had a successful sequel. The remake wasn't a success, but that movie itself from 1985 just keeps going. And if you talk to the people here, you know, where they, they re-watch it, they share it with their friends, their family, and that was an R when it came out, and now it'd be like a PG or a PG-13. So it's something, Fright Night is something, if you want to share horror, classic horror, you can show it to your 10-year-old. And I think that's part of it, because kids come in here and know the, know the lines. You're so cool, Brewster. Welcome to Fright Night for real. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing. Talk a little bit about working with Chris uh, Sarandon. I, I like the story you told about he's the one who came up with the eating fruit. Oh, yeah. Chris, well, Chris, is, Chris was, uh, I needed, when I did Fright Night, it was my first directorial effort, and I needed a, a, a name actor to give, to give a credibility beyond Roddy. And I had to go and convince Chris, who was, you know, an Academy Award nominee for Dog Day Afternoon. Who knows how it works out, but Chris and I had always gotten along. And he brought what he is. He's a character actor in the body of a leading man. That's really what he is. And he made character choices for Jerry, including, you know, because he found out fruit bats were the dominant bat. He decided that he asked what I thought about, you know, using eating an apple to clean his fangs. And I thought, great. And that's how, you know, you have the the half-chewed apple with the fangs in Fright Night. And then we went on, I put, I put in my cast him as the cop in Child's Play, and he did a great job for me in a, in a terrific TV movie called The Stranger Within that got Rick Schroeder a, 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 a Golden Globe nomination. And any time I can that I can work with Chris, I do. And talk about working with the practical effects in the film, because I think that's part of what also makes it last. I mean, CGI teams, seems to get dated, but those effects are still brilliant. What happens with CGI is it lays on top 
of the film. So whatever you shoot, whatever the plate is you shoot, or green screen, then they take CGI video and they marry video. Video games are so huge that there's a awareness among the public, especially the younger public, the game, the people who play games, that they're looking at CGI. And that pulls you out of the reality. And it's never really three-dimensional. It always stays two-dimensional. Now it gets better and better and better, but it's, my, my eye still reads it. But I'm, I'm a professional too. But when you have in-camera effects, practical effects, real effects, when the, when uh, uh, Charlie's, when, uh, when uh, Jeff, Stephen Jeffries, Evil Ed transitions, and when he's a werewolf, that's a real model werewolf head. The bat, when it attacks uh, at the bottom of the stairs, it attacks Charlie and it attacks Peter Vincent. That's a real bat with a five and a half foot wingspan. And that's three dimensional on, the, on screen. And your eye can tell it. And it gives a greater reality, but also it, it's huge fun because somebody's had the sculpted. They haven't photoshopped it in, in CGI. They haven't used a matrix of numbers to create, you know, a, a creature. When you do real creature effects or, or whatever you're doing, it's just three-dimensional. It's like if you try to look at, at smoke in CGI, uh, it always seems like it lays on top. Smoke really gives it away. Hair gives it away. Fine, because it's very hard for them to do do separate strands of hair. But, you know, real, real monsters, even if it's a guy zippered up in a suit, it reads, it reads more real. Do you have a favorite film of your own that you're most proud of or happiest with? Well, I, I guess Fright Night. You know, I mean, I, I think my, my ability to do, uh, to do visual set pieces, probably the best example is Child's Play, because, you know, you, you can watch me building, watch me building suspense, and I get better at it with each one, but Fright Night because of the heart and the humanity. I, it's my favorite film, and because it was a joyful experience, and the actors were all, everything was right about that. We were the little throwaway film, you know, nobody paid attention to it, nobody expected anything out of it. That was when Columbia thought uh, Perfect and The Slugger's Wife were their two big films, you know, and now, so you never know, do you? And what do you think about the state of horror films right now? Are you still interested in contributing to that? Do you think that there's interesting stuff going on, or has it stagnated a bit? No, I think it's, I think it's getting interesting again. Six months ago, I went to a Masters of Horror dinner. Everybody was talking about doing television, because that's where the writing, the good writing was. I, we went uh, about a week ago and had a dinner. There were 35 of us, and it was a Wes Craven tribute to Wes Craven, uh, but, but everybody I talked to was doing an independent film. Nobody was making any money, but you know, because the money's in the studio system, but they were, there were a lot of interesting films being done, and being done by people who knew what they were doing. So I think, I think horror will get interesting again. It's gone through, it's gone through sort of a down period of torture porn, you know, which is, you know, when, when all else fails, shock them or when all else fails breaks that taboos. You know, that became among the younger people, uh, you know, the, what they thought was the, the road to success. 
So it's getting more interesting again, I think. And you have some good films that have come out too. It follows. Being a, uh, you know, I can't remember the, the one about the, the, the vampire from Iran, the foreign film. Oh, uh, Girl Walks Home Alone? Yes, and the one about uh, uh, Girl, the Swedish film that they remade here. Let the Right One In? Yes, terrific. You know, but they're real people. I mean, the, the, it's an old saw, but the more you care about the people in the film, the more emotionally affecting and the stronger the horror. In other words, it's, 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 it's scary only to the extent that you're invested in a character you like coming out alive at the other end. And do you have a project in the works right now? I have. I have my, what I've got is I've got my own, my own website, which I am building, called TH Terror Time or Tom Holland's Terror Time. And I also have an extremely active Facebook page. And I just finished my first novel. I'm about ready to read it over again. And I'm working on a, on a, on a novelization of uh, a sequel to Fright Night. You've been busy. I've been very busy, and I have Tom Holland's Twisted Tales, which is uh, a, um, an Internet series I did. I'm about ready to put those up for downloads on my, on my uh, uh, Terror Time website. And, but the website's been just exploded. And that's, that's interesting, too. I was going to say, you're really keeping up with the times, too. It's not like you're just making conventional Well, I was, I, was, I was forced into it by all the younger guys because I'm pre-digital. I started out writing on a manual typewriter. And when I got an electric typewriter, IBM, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, you know? But, I mean, it's, it's, when, you, when you hang around younger, by younger, I mean probably anybody 45 or under, they all grew up digital. And so they know social media, but social media has become such a, an embedded part of, you know, the, the way people get the word out. So much now is marketing, you market your own films to some extent, and as long as you're in the, digital has crushed the cost of production. Nobody has an excuse for not making, any filmmaker who says they can't make a film today, something's wrong with them. You can go out with your iPhone and make a film today. You can, get, you can get Pro Tools and, and cut it on your Apple. I mean, there's, there's the, so the cost of making a film has fallen to nothing. When I was starting out, I couldn't even find a film school. And you know, I mean, the first one I shot, I shot a 16 mil at, uh, at Northwestern in my first year. And the film department was one room. And they had one introductory class, and that was it. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's gotten a lot easier to learn the craft. It's gotten a lot harder right now anyway to make a living at it. It's difficult. So uh, I want to thank you for taking some time to My speak with pleasure. me. My pleasure. And I, I hope everybody in San Diego enjoys this. And any filmmakers out there, get out there and make a film. It's the only, it's the only way you're going to get better. Every time you work, you'll get better and you're your skill and your craft will grow. The other thing I'll say is the kids coming out today, the, 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 their, their, their ability with CGI is amazing. What they can do to create a world that I could only dream about 30 years ago is amazing, you know. Of course, they're all doing post-apocalyptic stories, but you know, with dead worlds, but, but so they're, the, the, the grasp of 
digital talent now is, is enormous among younger people. Well, what would you advise these young filmmakers who are using CGI? Because it, CGI, when used properly, like in the new Planet of the Apes movie and Guardian of the Galaxy, it was brilliant use. But what would you advise them if they're planning to use CGI? What's the caution to make sure that it works well in a story? Oh, boy. Well, it, it, I don't know. I can't tell you anything about CGI because the, 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 the skill levels are so high. The beating heart of any story are the people, and it has to be character-driven. I don't care how much they're surrounded by, you know, by, the, by a world, by a, a great, you know, digital world. You, you, they have to be motivated by, some, by, by humanity, by something we all understand. And the, the, the higher the stakes, the stronger the motivation, the more involvement with the audience will have with the movie. And really success in storytelling is, is an audience that, 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 is, that loves your characters. And I thank you all very much out there. God bless. Thanks for listening to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Remember to check back each Thursday for reviews and each Friday for interviews. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie, signing off from Son of Monsterpalooza in Burbank. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.